everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you here. As always with me is Brandon Odo. Hello. Uh, and we have a special guest with us today. Dr. Felipe Tehran is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Weill Cornell in New York City. But more importantly, for our purposes, he is an emergency and critical care ultrasound guru. Uh, he runs the resuscitative TEE course. And we're going to talk a little bit about something that probably most of us are not super familiar with in the ICU setting. And that's the use of transesophageal echocardiography in critical care. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, Felipe. So you are, of course, an emergency physician, and you're in the ED when a 55-year-old gentleman rolls through the door. Now, he has a history of some coronary artery disease, hypertension, moderate COPD, and he's actually about three weeks status post a coronary artery bypass graft. They grafted his lima to his LAD and a vein to his OM. He also had a surgical aortic valve replacement then. Pretty uneventful in the OR and immediately post-operatively. And he was discharged home on some aspirin, some metoprolol, some warfarin. Things went okay until the past two days or so when he started to experience some worsening shortness of breath some general weakness, lightheadedness, just not feeling great. So he came into your ED. They get some vital signs at triage, and he's only saturating about 85% on room air, so they throw him on some oxygen. Blood pressure is just 88 over 42. This map's about 58. His heart rate's 115, which looks to be sinus, and his temp is 37.3. They roll him into one of your recess bays, and you see a, a sort of weak, just kind of wan-appearing adult male. He's kind of rubbing at his chest. He's, he's pale a little bit, and, and when you touch him, his skin is cool. They, they quickly get a 12-lead EKG, and it's kind of non-diagnostic. There's a little bit of artifact. There's a, a kind of conduction abnormality, which might be old. But suffice to say, it's not obviously ischemic-looking. They get a quick chest x-ray, and it just looks like diffuse pulmonary edema to your eyes. Now, you have a senior resident who's kind of running the show, and he's already in there with an ultrasound in his hand, taking a look at the heart and trying to get some TTE windows. And unfortunately, it's technically very difficult. One of the toughest ones you've had in a while. About the best he can do, and he's, he's pretty good at this, but you can just sort of see a heart somewhere in there, a little bit of movement. All they can really see is, is the lungs, and there's just diffuse beelines bilaterally. But there's the surgical incision, and he's hyperinflated, so you just can't get much. So let me pause here and ask you, this sort of patient so far, what you have in front of you, is there any role for TEE? I'm going to go with yes as the definitive answer. Um, and this seems like a highly selected case, which is, uh, which is great. Um, it's a good example to, I think, make the, the, the key points here. Um, I mean, no doubt that in this case, you just described the patient um, had somebody attempt to obtain 
uh, transthoracic views in, of echocardiography, and, and that makes complete sense as a first approach, as what's readily available. But um, it is no surprise that that was unsuccessful. Um, and this, as a um, technically, would be a cardio post cardiothoracic surgery patient, essentially. And so, and anywhere else um, in the hospital where this happened. So, if this had happened while the patient was still in the hospital after um, undergoing the surgery, this patient would have been a candidate for immediate uh, TEE um, for the hemodynamic assessment in that situation. And so, um, our um, m myself and and my team and the, the many people that have been working in this field in this area um, feel pretty strong that we should provide, we should offer our patients in the emergency department the same standard that we offered elsewhere, that we would offer the same patient in the operating room, outside the operating room, or in the cardiothoracic ICU. So the answer is yes. For those who have not done much TEE, um, certainly a lot of it is done in more elective settings. What would be the logistics in a case like this? For example, do you need an airway? Do you need conscious sedation to do this? So we can take a uh, we can take a step back here and actually and, and sort of formally introduce um, TEE as a modality um, for the for this resuscitative setting. Um, the the use of TEE is obviously not new to us in medicine. It's been around for several decades, and it is a standard of care um, for the assessment of patients and, uh, doing cardiac surgeries and, and many indications. It is uh, commonly used by, by a cardiac anesthesiologist, and it is also commonly used by cardiologists uh, in, in a number of indications. And so what we have been doing um, in the emergency department as well as in the ICU with uh, a lot of people in the past several several years at this point is simply um, applying that same modality, that same uh, device and uh, transesophageal echo to answer questions at the bedside in uh, a number of different critical care uh, environments. And so this scenario in the emergency department would be the the kind of classic um, environment where, we, where I see patients most of the time. I practice, not most of the time, all the time. I practice entirely in the emergency department setting. And um, But regardless of where you're located, um, it is what defines the what we call resuscitative T or um, focused T or directed T is really um, the scope and the questions that you're asking. And so what really um, sort of distinguishes TE in its sort of resuscitative application, uh, which is what this patient would, would require, would benefit from, is um, using TE not with a comprehensive diagnostic scope, which would be the, the approach used in, in the operating room doing those perioperative TEs or um, when cardiology is using TE to answer the question of, you know, are there vegetations in this patient's valves that could explain the fever, ongoing fever in the ICU? Um, we're not doing that type of assessment. We're doing an assessment that in this case would be directed specifically to answer the question, um, is there something immediately treatable that um, we need to intervene on on this patient who is about to crash in front of us? And in that scenario, um, this same modality, TE, can be used with a um, 
with a focus approach, with a focus protocol to answer those those key questions. Um, and so, so you're using it in the same way that many other people would use TTE exactly at the, the bedside, same. directed by clinicians, to ask the same questions. It's just that in a case like this, they were unable to do it using Surface Echo. Exactly. So the same questions were, were, were again, um, supposed to answer, right? We're supposed to rule out a pericardial tamponade in a scenario like this um, because that would demand a, that would trigger an action um, that uh, we we need to, it's time dependent, right? It's, it's, um, it's a, it should be enacted in a, matter, in a matter of minutes or seconds. And so in order to rule out that tamponade, we do need to see the pericardium. And if you can't see the pericardium with transthoracic, which is, as you mentioned, the case, um, not only the, the, what happened in this one uh, patient, but the, this, the common scenario in, in post-cardiac surgery patients, given the dressings that the, they have in the chest and um, the air that might still be there from, uh, from the thoracotomy, from the sternotomy. Um, so yes, the answer is the same um, questions that need to be answered um, on a, a patient like that. Uh, if you can't answer those questions with transthoracic, then uh, transesophageal is is simply a modality that can offer um, some some data in, in that in that scenario. So, okay. So in a case like this, you would like to get it done, but logistically, how is this going to work? Is this the moment, or would you do other things to stabilize them first? Yeah, this is uh, like in any scenario, you want to follow your ABCs and approach the patient as you normally do, right? You're going to jump to your diagnostics uh, before um, before securing your airway in this case. So if I don't have the patient in front of me, but if, if you deem that that patient needs to have their airway protected, then that should be the first um, the first intervention. Um, well, you know, many people with we've gotten so handy at, at doing a TTE that in a case like this, someone might have put an ultrasound on them even while you're still stabilizing them because it's so quick and easy exactly. to do. But I mean, TE is a little more invasive, right? So maybe that's not something you would rush to quite as quickly. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, that leads to the point that I was going to make, which is we often like to especially when we're describing kind of hypothetical scenarios, think about them in this kind of uh, sequence of steps in that you're going to do this first, this first, and this, you know, this second, and, you know, this then. But in reality, um, we don't care for patients by ourselves. We have a team. And if it's a, it's a well, if it's a well-organized team, um, we're able to do those things um, sort of in tandem or simultaneously or many of them. And so while somebody is probably working on the airway, or at least anticipating what's going to come next in terms of airway management in this patient, getting ready for an intubation, for instance, uh, or starting to oxygenate that patient who looks like is in shock um, at minimum, then um, simultaneously, either that same person who attempted the uh, transthoracic or somebody else, um, if that person doesn't have the skills, then um, in my mind should be getting ready to perform a transesophageal echo when, when the conditions are, are met. And so to answer your question specifically regarding the need for intubation or airway management before or preceding the TEE, the answer is um, that for um, the scope of resuscitative or focused TE that, that we do in the emergency department, that um, our colleagues do in the ICU, we do it only in patients with a secured airway. And, and that is mostly because it, it is scenarios like this one where your patient is profoundly sick 
And um, it is, in most cases, uh, the case that, that the patient is intubated before. So cardiac arrest being one of the central scenarios that we, we use TE more, uh, most frequently, those patients do get definitive airway management before we do the TE. And whether um, that's um, uh, intubation uh, or not, that will depend on your preference. But um, as, as, uh, as far as TE goes, you will need to have a definitive airway. And so that's going to be either an um, endotracheal intubation or tracheostomy if the patient is in the ICU or another uh, setting where that might be an option. And so in this case, um, I would say, yes, I would proceed with intubation, probably not just because we want to do a TE, but among other reasons, because I, I would anticipate that that would be needed uh, down the road in the next few minutes on this same patient, providing um, as a modality, as a, as a diagnostic tool that would provide um, uh, actionable information. And so among other reasons, again, uh, I, I would uh, I would consider would have TE in the back of my head as a need um, to to intubate that patient, but probably um, there are other reasons why you would be thinking um, that intubation is is uh, uh, an adequate invention at that point. Okay, so as a just general rule in the framework of resuscitative TE, you're not doing it on patients without an airway, but many of the patients have one anyway, and in this case. Uh, that is where he ends up. They give a very small fluid bolus without any real change in hemodynamics, so they put him on norepinephrine. The resident tries him on some BiPAP for his breathing. Maybe it helps transiently, but he's getting more fatigued. He's really only rousable to pain. The map down is, is now down to 45 with your norepinephrine at like 0.3 mics per kilogram. So you do decide to intubate him. You induce him with ketamine and rocuronium. The blood pressure drops. Uh, the pulses become sort of questionably palpable. Um, they bolus some epinephrine. You get a pressure back. They leave him on a, an epi drip at, at 0.06 mics per kilogram. Again, the resident puts on the ultrasound and is unable to get any real views. So perhaps this is the right moment for TEE. Um, we're not going to be able to get into a ton of the, the super technical aspects here because it's really something you need to get hands-on with or at least have visuals. But for those who are used to doing TTE, what are the technical differences in actually performing this procedure? Is it essentially the same thing with, just with different views that we're used to? Or are, are there some ways in which it's qualitatively different? Yeah, it's a good question. So, and before I jump to that, to that answer, I want to just add something to the, the point that we made previously, which is that yes, the patient in general, patients are intubated when, uh, before we do TEs in this resuscitative setting. Um, could we do a uh, TE on a patient with uh, procedural sedation or the equivalent of that with whatever sedative of your choice you have? Um, the answer is yes. It is part of the standard that um, it has been defined, I'd say, broadly across the board, both in critical care settings as well as emergency settings, to do TEs only in intubated patients um, as a standard. Again, um, in this case specifically, and that is because you you do need to have um, uh, you need to at least have uh, the ability to provide the patient with sedation. You're inserting a, a thick 
um, device in their esophagus, so they can't be fully awake. So that's kind of the starting point. And so whether uh, something like procedural sedation would make sense in a case like this hemodynamically unstable crashing patient is a sort of a separate discussion. And probably most um, folks in the audience will uh, know immediately that is probably not the the kind of patient in whom you would consider procedural sedation. Um, with that said, um, as I said, it is a standard at this point that we have kind of accepted um, or, or agreed upon across the board. So just wanted to add that. But in other scenarios, not this patient perhaps, could you do a T uh, in a patient that has not been intubated just with, with a sedative? But the answer is yes. Um, and that's what our cardiology colleagues do many times in the ICU setting. Uh, when they're doing a comprehensive TE um, in, in other settings as well. Okay. To um, go to the question regarding the, the what do you need in order to do a TE? Well, it, the, 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 the good news is are that uh, for those of you who are familiar with transthoracic, and hopefully that is the, the case um, with the majority of you practicing in critical care in emergency settings, I think that is a standard of care for the practice of critical care in emergency medicine in 2022. Um, and so if you have, uh, if you're familiar with transthoracic, with echocardiography, surface echo, then you have uh, basically 50% of the work there or worked on. Um, and, and this is because we can break down the skills that are needed to perform transesophageal echo in two categories, the the cognitive skills and the motor skills. And this is a way that I, I approach any procedure, um, not just TE, but I, I find it helpful to understand kind of what, what is needed to become competent at TE. And so the cognitive skills are going to be image interpretation, right? And in, in identification of normal anatomy and then identification of pathology. And that is exactly what we do with transthoracic. And the views are, for the most part, especially the ones that we use on a resuscitative or focused protocol, are uh, very similar, are essentially mirror images of those that we do in transthoracic. It's just a different perspective. And so for those of you that have experience with transthoracic and that are able to identify um, a personal long axis, a four apical four-chamber, an apical five-chamber, uh, short uh, transthoracic, uh, um, short axis view, any of those views will have an equivalent in TE where the anatomy is exactly the same except that it's flipped. You're looking at an image that is uh, rotated 180 degrees because you're generating um, the image from behind the heart. So uh, what that means is that when we try to teach uh, transophageal echo to a critical care physician or to an emergency doctor um, who already has that background, that um, information in their in their brain, they can, um, they, the, the work that needs to be done is essentially uh, the being able to translate that anatomy into uh, TE and understand how TE images get generated. And there's some, um, there, there's some work that needs to be done in, in making that transition and sort of understanding the anatomy from that retro cardiac perspective. And that is um, something that, as, as Brandon was able to experience during the, the workshop that we do, uh, we spend quite, um, um, quite some time 
uh, on that uh, part of the process, on that link, uh, just doing that transition um, of, of, of the transthoracic or surface anatomy to this retrocardiac perspective, which we've learned that makes um, make things a lot easier. And so that's the first part, is, is understanding, is the cognitive ability to recognize the anatomy. What's, you know, what are the different chambers that you're looking at? And of course, the second is the motor skills. And for the motor skills, the good news is that um, it is a... Uh, a very simple procedure. We're using a um, a device that looks a lot like other devices that we use um, in in emergency medicine or in critical care. If you have done bronchoscopies, then you have basically done almost the same in terms of you know hand eye coordination. If you know have to do NPLs or any type of uh, fiber optic um, procedure that requires that kind of hand hand eye coordination, you've already have probably developed some of those motor skills, um, and so. In our experience, and this is consistent with the literature um, described both in anesthesiology as well as in emergency medicine and critical care, um, the learning curve from the mortar side of things is actually pretty um, pretty quick. Um, physicians with a um, with directed training in simulators or in the operating room um, over the course of hours, four six hours can become pretty proficient at, at developing the view, so manipulating the probe um, with with the mechanical and digital controls that it has. So fairly simple. This is, uh, just to finish this, this answer here, if you think about how long it took you as somebody who does transthoracic to get comfortable at acquiring transthoracic views, it takes weeks or months. Um, us in the emergency department, we spend couple months teaching interns how to develop those transthoracic views. It, it takes a lot of work to get those views developed, get, find your way in between the ribs and really find the right, uh, the right windows. And it is um, much easier, um, as you uh, will experience if you spend any time with a simulator and TE, um, to develop those views because there's nothing on the way. You're literally imaging the heart with nothing between that thin wall of the esophagus and and the and the and the atrium. Yeah, and just from a, a learner's perspective, because I, I did your course a, a couple months ago, I, I really at the end of the day think it is a an easier skill than learning TTE from scratch. Um, all of the concepts are applicable. It's just different, but in in the same sort of way, if that makes sense. People understand that they have to, you know, maneuver their probe around, get different angles on things, but it's it's sort of technically easier because there are really no difficult windows, um, and there's actually fewer axes and dimensions you can manipulate the probe in. Um, you don't have to move around on a chest. You can just you move in and out, and then you rotate from side to side, and then there's this new axis of manipulating the plane of the beam itself, the omniplane, to cut through things at different levels. But that's really it. So, I mean, it, it, if you had to pick one thing to learn, and of course you have to learn both, so it's not really, but honestly, it's, it's not as intimidating as it sounds. All right, so you have a probe in the patient, and, you know, if you were using you know surface images to do this people will be doing things like assessing the contractility of the lv looking at the the right heart to look for signs of obstruction like pe looking for fusions to rule out something like tamponade are you essentially doing all of the same things now just with different views 
Yes, exactly. So we're, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to answer exactly the same questions, right? The, the hemodynamics are the same. The heart, the, the heart is the same. Everything is the same. We're just using a different approach. As um, some of my, my friends in the field like to say, uh, T is just an additional probe. It's the same machine, the same principles. You're operating the ultrasound um, with the same the same concepts, you're just using an additional probe. You use your trans, uh, your your linear probe for certain things, you use your face array probe uh, for other things, and you use a transoptical probe for um, for other things. And so um, from with that in mind, um, the 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 questions that we're gonna be answered are gonna be the same, but some of the capabilities that we have are different. And that's where T has sort of an edge uh, over transthoracic. Uh, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. In this case, um, we want to look at that patient's heart and at least from my perspective, I would wanna know what's that patient's LV function, global LV function immediately to know what, what are we dealing with. We are, we have a patient in front of us that looks like is in shock or clinically appears to be um, headed that, that way. Um, I want to start characterizing that shock, right? I want to understand what is the predominant uh, mechanism or underlying physiology driving that shock. What we have learned with any time spent in the ICU or the emergency department is that unlike what the textbooks tell us, um, there's no such thing as or or infrequently we see clean types of shock, right? Where there's only one component. Very often we have more than one component, some cardiogenic and some distributive. And so in this case, I would want to know initially, what is the LV function? What is the RV function? Qualitative, what is the heart looking like? What is the RV looking like? Is your RV dilation? Is there tamponade or not? Having answered those questions, I'm probably going to be interested in also maintaining a view of that left ventricle um, or assessing um, that ventricle serially over the next few minutes. We're going to do a number of interventions um, regarding sedation, potentially for intubation, RSI, potentially. You have started pressors. You mentioned uh, um, norepinephrine. And as we do interventions uh, going forward in the next few minutes in the care of this critically ill patient, the, the power of T is that we can maintain, essentially, a continuous window of that heart um, in real time throughout that resuscitation and continuously reassess what are the effects of the different inventions that we're doing um, in, in that patient's heart. And I think that is really a powerful kind of distinction between um, TEE and, and transthoracic. We, we, we get only, uh, if, if we're lucky, we get the, the option or we get the opportunity to look at the heart in snapshots with transthoracic. And what I found in my practice um, to be really valuable is that opportunity to actually maintain a, a serial reassessments of that, of that heart as opposed to just a, sing, a single snapshot. Okay. So, of course, many people would reassess with TTE, but your ability to use this as a continuous monitoring device is much better because you can leave the probe in place. Okay. So, you, you sort of look around and many things look good. You see no pericardial effusions. Um, you even take a look at the IVC and, in fact, the SVC because that's the view you get here. And um, the patient looks really fluid overloaded, if anything. And uh, I'll tell you about the contractility in a second, but you even assess the aorta. You don't see any abnormalities there. You look at the valves briefly and they're sort of functionally okay. However, 
the heart is diffusely hypokinetic. The LV is an EF of maybe 10%. The RV is, is widely dilated and, and barely moving. So uh, you start some milrinone in addition to the epidrip. Cardiology and also CT surgery are there at the bedside, and they're talking about things like ECMO. And they decide that's probably going to be needed, so they activate their team, and, and they're setting up pumps and things. But in the course of all this, you lose the patient's pulses. And you, not only can you not palpate them, um, but you're, uh, you're really unable to you know, assess any perfusion at all. On the TE screen, you see contractility, which is organized but is, is very weak. Would you consider this PEA if you see contractions but they're not generating any real pulses? Yeah, uh, for sure. And did you did you mention if had a A line being placed at that point or there is or not? not no. Just okay. to to wrinkle that up further. Yeah, um, yeah. So hopefully that would happen very soon in the next few seconds. Um, somebody will be working on that. Um, and and regardless of, of of that, at this point, if we don't have a palpable pulse, if you don't have confirmation of a pulse, and that heart is is doing what you're describing, that indeed would be basically the definition of pulse sexual activity. That would be um, an indication to start that patient in in um, in uh, ACLS or uh, start chest compression essentially. Okay, so you don't point at the screen and go, "Oh no, it's contracting. He's okay." I can't see your face, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that you're trying to, uh, you're doing this on purpose here. You're trying to take us to the question of PEA and when should you do compressions? Is that, is that? Sure. Well, this comes up sometimes with TTE as well. You know, what is PEA versus hypotension? And I mean, and you're getting this many more looks at the heart. I would think it comes up all the more often. And I and I ask you that way because and I'm gonna I'm gonna take my you know TE educator researcher head off and put my cardiac arrest researcher hat on right now to address the question. And this is something that I want to make sure that everybody understand does has little to do with transophageal echo and whether using or not. As you said, of course, the fact that we're looking at the heart for, for sort of in, in a continuous way gives us a, a new kind of dimension of assessment of the heart. So yes, that, that is, that is true. But from a um, from a clinical standard standpoint, in 2022, we still manage PEA as a rhythm of arrest. And any patient like this one, where you can't palpate a pulse, should be started or chest compression should be started. And this is assuming that you're not dealing with an LVAT patient or other, other sort of specific scenarios. But in this case that you're describing, if you can't palpate a pulse, if you don't have the certainty that the patient's contractility is generating um, mean, meaningful perfusion, then you should start uh, chest compressions. Um, the, there are studies that have been done recently, sort of proof of concepts, pilot studies, including some that my team have done um, in, in the lab in the preclinical arena, and questions like, should we treat some of these patients with, uh, pre with pressors as, as a sort of form of cardiogenic shock uh, or extreme form of shock uh, as opposed to cardiac arrest and with continuous with a bolus dose of epinephrine and chest compressions and and I think we could, we can spend hours having a very interesting sort of intellectual discussion there 
Um, but the the bottom line is that as of 2022, the what we know about the, how we should manage these patients is is what what it's written in the guidelines. And the work that my team is doing and many others are doing is is directed specifically to try to further categorize those patients with PEA. And I personally believe that there might be a group within that spectrum of PEA that actually benefits from holding off in chest, with chest compressions and providing a treatment that looks more like what we give to those patients in cardiogenic shock. Um, that could include mechanical support, that could, could be percutaneous mechanical support, something like impeller devices, a number of other options, as well as different um, uh, presser uh, choices. All right, so you do start chest compressions. Now that CPR and a kind of standard ACLS code is underway, what is the role of TE? Does it change what you're doing at all? Yeah. So another factor or kind of a distinguishing element of TE um, in contrast to transthoracic, as I mentioned earlier, is that we can we can uh, visualize the heart continuously. So that um, that applies to those patients in shock or that have do have a pulse is even more important and even more. Um, I would say, advantageous during uh, an actual resuscitation, so the, during the intra-rest phase. So in a case like the one that you're describing, as soon as we start doing chest compressions in this patient, um, first of all, we've already looked at this patient's heart. And so we've already, presumably at that point, ruled out cardiac tamponade. We've ruled out an intracardiac thrombus. We've ruled out potentially a uh, proximal aortic um, dissection or aortic um, lesion, we've ruled out uh, signs or elements that would have suggest a P, uh, PE, uh, potentially we looked at the pulmonary um, arteries. And so we had um, we had done that prior to this patient decompensating and going into arrest. So it is a uh, somewhat of a special case in that we've already kind of excluded a lot of the reversible causes that would normally uh, be of interest in, in a sort of a fresh in, uh, intra-arrest assessment, like uh, most of the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients that we see. So with that said, the next uh, order of business for me in that patient will be to assess the quality of the chest compressions. And this is um, something that as we've written about and, and, and talk about elsewhere, is, is a I think a pr very promising f uh, future of, of TE and it's the ability to actually look at the compression site or what we call the uh, uh, the area of maximal compression. That is essentially what part of the heart, what part of the cardiac anatomy you're squeezing with the external chest compressions. We would want to compress the left ventricle. That is how or why we compress the heart uh, or the chest according to the cardiac pump theory. But what we've learned is that in many cases, that is not actually the case. In many cases, um, either the compression is just not um, in, not adequate, not complete, not not enough. So there's an issue of depth um, that doesn't um, give us enough compression of the left ventricle. Or in some cases, there's actual ob obstruction of the left ventricle outflow tract or the aortic root, um, such that there's... Uh, little or no compression of the left ventricle whatsoever. So those are the two things that we um, then, uh, practically speaking, would kind of focus on as we uh, get started with that uh, resuscitation before we get ready for um, ECMO cannulation in, in, in the case that, that uh, is, is the intervention to follow. So you are helping direct 
the perfect spot for these chest compressions to occur. And of course, you're making sure there are no other reversible pathologies here. And in fact, the, the team standing around does decide to try to crash this patient onto intra-arrest VA ECMO. Um, they're proceeding to cannulate the patient. Is there any utility for TEE to assist in this process? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the this is we could categorize this as the third kind of large uh, group of indications for for resuscitative or or goal directed T in an emergency or critical care setting, and that is procedural guidance. And so, within procedural guidance, um, there are a number of procedures that we can guide with TE, again, depending on the clinical environment that you're that you're working on, um, whether is placement of intravenous pacemaker wires, uh, whether is a, uh, again, impella or guiding a balloon pump um, or ECMO cannulas, any of those things that we normally do percutaneously in that in the ideal setting, um, such as the operating room, would be done under fluoroscopy, for instance. Um, when we don't have fluoroscopy, it makes a lot of sense to visualize those guide wires, those um, cannulas in this case, uh, under uh, TE guidance. And, and, um, and that's what we do exactly. So it is, I'd say, the number one or most common indication for procedural guidance in the emergency department setting. We, when I was at University of Pennsylvania, established uh, TE as one of the um, kind of elements of our ECPR program and would uh, routinely use TE to guide uh, the uh, the cannulation for VA ECMO. So the case that you're describing here would be VA ECMO cannulation, um, presumably, and uh, we have an, a really unique opportunity to visualize both the placement of the arterial gut wire coming from the femoral artery um, into the aorta um, and the, the same in the venous side. So the, uh, the venous gut wire in, coming from the IVC into the right atrium um, and then uh, guiding on over that, uh, feeding the, the actual venous cannula, which is because it's long enough, we can actually see it and place it um, under real-time guidance. So the arterial Arterial cannulas are short enough that you really can't see them on their arterial side. You're just seeing the the guide wire. But as you um, might have experience, if you have if you have seen or have any experience doing uh, cases of VA ECMO in the in the ECPR setting or in the the sort of crashing ECMO um, uh, realm of things, it is rather challenging actually to distinguish to differentiate between the the femoral vein and the arteries uh, when when folks are getting chest compressions. And so it is exactly that um, where, where we found uh, T to be really helpful to, um, in real time, guide the cannulator. So it uh, can be used to confirm, at least for the venous cannula, its venous position and, and also maybe optimize its position within the vessel. All right. So why don't we close it there? Um, Never mind what was going on with this patient. Uh, maybe they had a graft down. Maybe there was some kind of stunning or myocarditis. But I think we got a chance to see how TE contributed to the management. Let me just close with two questions for you. S simple questions, but I, I think for the majority of listeners, TE in this sort of setting is not something they're doing. And the first step for them would be to decide, is it something they should be doing? Um, they're sort of pre-contemplative. So my first question for you, everyone is familiar with how you know, TTE, 
you know, performed by clinicians at the bedside has kind of rolled out into the worlds of emergency medicine and critical care and so on. Um, is the introduction and rollout of TEE for resuscitative purposes, is it like that? In other words, it's a different skill and technology, but it is analogous in that it it can f- fulfill similar roles and be done in similar ways. Um, or is it fundamentally different in some way? So in other words, should we all be doing it in an ideal world? Or is it in some way different such that even if it is available to all of us, because it has a different risk profile or other practical differences, it should be reserved for you know a certain subset of providers or patients. Or obviously, if you can use a regular ultrasound probe, use that. But should we view it as the same sort of skill? Yeah, um, I think the answer is yes. And so I, I think there's a couple of nuances here. But initial answer I would that I would give you is yes. I think in 2022, um, trans is a modality that um, should be acquired by as many people practicing in emergency medicine and critical care as possible, especially if you are taking care of critically ill patients, um, such as the one that you just described. Um, do uh, are there there are a couple of um, I think caveats to make, especially when it comes to the level of competence or specifically the scope of practice. In emergency medicine, we have been um, discussing or what I think people uh, talk about uh, when or are thinking about when we talk about TE is is resuscitative or focused TE, and that is a, a subset of views. And uh, the scope is specifically to answer questions like the ones that we just outlined. In critical care, in 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 in, um, in uh, intensive care medicine, um, in the United States, the use of critical care echo was sort of divided into tiers of basic and advanced critical care echocardiography practice. Uh, the scope of advanced critical care echo practice includes a number of things that are beyond the scope of of those applications that we use uh, TTNTE for in the emergency department setting. And so um, when you look at the basic uh, components of, of uh, echocardiography in the ICU setting, then you're dealing exactly with the same things that, that we um, think about in the emergency department setting. And those are general assessment of LV and RV function, presence of pericardial effusion, um, and then intra-arrest uh, or peri-arrest assessment and procedural guidance. Those things, um, I think, if you are caring for critical ill patients, with patients in shock or in cardiac arrest, whether it's in the emergency department or in the ICU, and you um, you can't obtain the information that you need, i.e. you can't rule out a pericardial tamponade on this post-surgery patient, and you're wondering whether the patient should have an emergent thoracotomy or not, that patient... Uh, or restronotomy, that patient should have a transesophageal echo. And whether that is a cardiac anesthesiologist or cardiologist who is available um, emergently 24-7 or an emergency physician or intensivist that is um, trained to do it, um, it doesn't matter from my perspective. But I think the patient should be offered the right the right tool in that, in that scenario. And so um, the answer, I think, is yes for focus, goal-directed, and resuscitative TE, just like we, um, at some point, 
had discussions about video laryngoscopy and showed emergency physicians uh, or even laryngoscopy in general at some point. Um, just like we had those debates at some point, just like we had debates about uh, physicians using surface ultrasound to do fast exams in trauma and how that went from being kind of a debated thing to being a standard of care. Um, I think the same analogy can be used for transesophageal echo. Um, in 2022, it is available. Um, there's enough studies proving th uh, the safety, the feasibility of training uh, physicians in a, in a uh, focused scope. And therefore, I think if the resources um, are available, I think uh, both for in terms of human resources, ability to train people, um, as well as obviously having the device and having a machine, then um, it should be it should be part of our practice. A final question for you, and this is about the the degree of value here, because there are a lot of things people can spend time and money on acquiring, but if TE is one of them. How often do you think it helps? And what I mean is, if you have a patient where you know ultrasound is warranted to guide care, um, and for whatever reason it seems like TEE can add something over TTE, whether it's because of technical challenges or something that TTE can't do, whether it's detecting a finding that you otherwise didn't know about that you have to act on, whether it's, you know, just the degree of detail that's provided that you couldn't get otherwise. In how many of these cases would you see that TEE uh, changes management? And of course, it's not possible to give me a number, but I'm going to make you. It, obviously, it's not 100% of the time when you insert a probe, and it's not 0%, but is it 50% is it 10%? Yeah, it's it's a that's a great question. It's a it's an important question which we are actively working to answer uh, and produce data to that end. Um, just to to plug it uh, here we're we're working on um, with a number of other institutions across the country and internationally on a uh, multi-center registry, the resuscitated T collaborative registry, that is uh, at this point getting close to 200 enrollments of patients that had had T specifically in the in the resuscitative uh, setting, whether it's emergency department or ICUs. That, um, amongst the the many uh, objectives of that registry, is is answering this question: is how often um, do we find uh, actionable findings? I can tell you, but based based on my experience, which is a biased experience and probably not a um, very uh, generalizable experience, because I'm obviously this is something that I'm um, very interested in that I spend a lot of time um, doing and, and, and helping others. Uh, but in my personal experience, it, the, the, every every critically ill patient in whom we use tea, I find um, relevant information. So I'd say the majority of cases where a tea is indicated, which let's remind people, are are very specific indications. So we're talking about patients in shock with inadequate transthoracic windows. So a case like this one where the patient is in shock and you would want to know what's going on with the heart and you can't with transthoracic, then in that case it would be TE would be indicated. Procedural guidance, same, intra-arrest assessment. In those scenarios, in those indications, in the large majority of cases where we use TE for those indications, I find... Um, helpful uh, data. I, I find um, helpful um, uh, findings. Uh, in terms of data that we have available, our 
team at Penn a couple of years ago published a perspective um, series uh, in 33 patients with TE in the emergency department setting, in, in the setting of uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, in those, we found that 97% of the patients in whom TE was performed had a sort of documented actionable finding or information. And so that's, you know, not 100%, but pretty damn close. Um, it, it is all about the denominator, of course, is important distinctions or considerations there in terms of, of the selection bias and and uh, and again, what are the findings and 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 uh, things like that? But uh, that's one number that I could share with you, uh, data, data, data driven. And the other number that I can also give you that I think is relevant for a critical care world is that there, there's data from at this point almost 20 years ago from ICUs in, in Paris and, and, and other parts of Europe um, describing that roughly 30% of patients in the intensive care setting. Um, that need a, an echocardiography for their assessment have inadequate transthoracic windows, so, or basically windows that are such that are not um, not informative. So that's a that's a good chunk of, of of patients, and we're working to establish whether again to to re to, to, to determine exactly in a larger population in the U.S. Um, what is what does what does that number look like? Well, I, we've burned through most of our time, but Brian, any uh, last questions here? Well, I think this has been a great discussion. I really like what you said just now about um, patients with poor windows. We run into that quite a bit uh, in our ICU. I work in a part of the country where everybody has lung disease. So parasternal views are often really tough to get. Uh, and I could see this being tremendously beneficial to us. I guess the one, two questions I have for you are sort of practical um, how, to, how to get this sort of thing going questions. One, do you find that you get pushback from other specialties, particularly cardiology or cardiac anesthesia, the people who normally do these studies? And then the second one would be just a purely practical, you know, it's one thing to have, uh, I have an ultrasound machine in my ICU that's got a phased array probe on it that when I'm done with it, I wipe down with a antiseptic cleaning cloth and, you know, it's on to the next patient. There seems to be a lot more involved in the maintenance and turnover of a TEE scope um, than, than that. So is that, does that become an issue then of, you know, where do you store it? Do you just keep it in the unit? Do you have to send it somewhere for processing after it's done, et cetera? Yeah. So to go to the question of how you go about implementing, this is some a re recurrent question that comes up all the time that we discuss um, and sort of address over a, 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 a QA um, at the end of our workshop. Because there's and that is because I think there are a lot of aspects to consider here. Um, the broadly speaking, I'd say the key um, aspects to implementation are to be very clear on what is it that you're doing, to identify exactly, kind of describe very clearly what is it that you are uh, doing, implementing. Specifically, I'm referring to being very deliberate in establishing that what we're doing is uh, resuscitative or focused, goal-directed, critical care TE, as opposed to comprehensive. Um, and that's the number one reason why I've found that people from other specialties, to answer partially your other question, my try to present resistance 
99% of the cases in when that happens is because folks have not really taken the time to understand exactly what is it that we're talking about. And they, they believe that you're trying to replace um, their job doing comprehensive uh, TEs. And so once that is taken care of, I think the next thing is to establish a good team. Um, of course, you will need a champion, you know, a, 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 a leader to implement this just like you wouldn't for any anything else of this nature, um, in that um, to that end, I think it's really important to identify some key allies, um, both within your department as well as um, outside your department. So, if you're in intensive care um, uh, practice in an ICU, I think identifying friends in uh, and this will depend on obviously how your ICU staff, whether it's medical or surgical or whether you have an anesthesiologist or not. Um, but regardless of that, I think um, looking for allies in anesthesiology, specifically cardiac anesthesiology, um, they perform, um, there's, a, there's a fair amount of overlap in, in what they do in the operative setting with what we do in the critical care and ED setting. And so it, there's a lot of value in establishing um, just meaningful and kind of honest um uh, relationships there between the, uh, those, you know, your department and and some allies in those in those other um, in the, in, the, in those other environments, and that can be very helpful both at a kind of high level, sort of politically, uh, to to have those people um, support you when you're starting the program, which will be, let's be honest, politics are key. Um, and it will also be very important practically. Uh, you will ideally want to spend time in the operating room if you have had the chance to take a course like the, the workshop that we offered or any other form of structured training, then you would want also to follow that with some uh, real experience in the operating room, uh, ideally. Um, and and so in order to do that, I think it'll be very helpful to have you know one or two colleagues uh, who understand the the value and the potential uh, of implementing uh, T in, in your setting, and they can be very helpful with, um, with that. Where do you store, um, just like any other endoscopic device that we use in the in the ICU or the ED? So just like your bronchoscope, um, the T probe doesn't need uh, sterilization; it needs high level disinfection, and what that means is using so a bunch, you know, a couple of different solutions. Um, and uh, and then uh, needs obviously a a, a a leak test, just a confirmation that there's no electrical current going um, in or out of the device. And the that is something that is routinely done in your hospital if they use TEs any and in, in cardiology or or in the ORs. So my recommendation in general is try to find where TEs are processed uh, in your institution and try to tag on to that. Uh, to, to that existing process as opposed to uh, try to reinvent the wheel and do it in your department. Um, where, do, where do you store it? You would store it in your unit, in a cabinet, just like you would store, um, again, a bronchoscope or uh, endocavitor probe or um, any other endoscopic uh, device. And, um, and in the turnaround time, is going to depend on, on, again, how well-oiled your processing machine is and, and whether you're sending it, outsourcing it to the operating room or to central processing department or to your cardiology department. Um, but anywhere between, I would say, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, like the turnaround time that I got our program at a pen, um, or a few hours, I'd say, or potentially days. 
you have really a lot of problems. All right, Felipe. I know you got to get going, so we'll let you go. Um, but thanks so much for your time. And uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more, we'll drop a link to the the resuscitative TEE course that Felipe runs. They they travel around the country. It's a one day course, and you learn everything from the technical aspects of performing TEE to questions like this about logistics, setting up a program, training, credentialing, um, and all that kind of real world stuff. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, um, guys. And yes, the, the course is, of course, a great resource. Um, but more broadly, resuscitativetea.com is the Resuscitative Tea Projects website. There's a lot of resources there if anybody wants to know more about some of the things that we mentioned, including some of the data and some of the references that I might have mentioned on the fly. Uh, a lot of that is, uh, is, is organized in that, um, in that website. So that's a, it's a great resource for anybody interested in this, in this modality. All right, we will call it quits there then. Remember, everyone, the content you heard today is just general educational material. It's not meant as medical advice. And the views you heard really are those of the speakers alone and do not represent our affiliated institutions.